to leave uh, a job that's both comfortable and also, you know, inspiring. And I had a conversation with my wife and, you know, the, the, the decision was really, look, do you just stick the giving department in a bottle and throw it in the sea and just wait and just see if in years to come it bobs back on your beach? Or do you seize the opportunity and give it a go? Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 36 and a relaxed conversation with a former colleague and someone I respect immensely. Steve Wickham decided to leave a job he loved at the Prince's Trust, set up his own for-purpose consultancy helping wealthy people and successful companies be better givers and better charity partners. Steve talks about the positive influence of his late father on his career choices and how an early experience as a journalist working for the Financial Times left him questioning journalism and his work choices. You're going to get a lot out of the episode. Enjoy. I thought we could just go straight into your founder story with the giving department. So you're director founder of the giving department. What, what's your mission? What's your, um, what do you guys do? So the giving department, we, we've been around now since 2010 and we work predominantly with businesses, exciting businesses and philanthropists. And in a simple word, we help them connect with their communities. We help them give away money um, supporting really purpose-led initiatives. Um, it's, it's funny, actually. I was doing some careers work with my eldest son the other um, last week, and he was had to interview me about what I actually do uh, as a job. And I sort of described it through to him again and, and answered all his questions. And then he said, you know, you've got to summarise it in, in just a couple of words. And I, and I said to him, well, I suppose in summary, you know, what, what we do is an absolute privilege. You know, we get trusted by people to help them make a difference here and around the world. Yeah, so we, we took a decision back at the start that we would be a business rather than a charity or a social enterprise. And I remember discussing that with a few folk at the time, getting some advice from sort of mentors. And it, it split opinion slightly. Years on, I think it's come up only a couple of times. Everyone's very comfortable that we are a for-profit business. I always joke that, you know, the, the profit's harder to, to actually achieve than you think sometimes, because what, what we also do is we do give back. What are there any, is there one project that um, kind of sticks out that you're most proud of? Or is there, is there a sort of moment when you went, aha, this is why we did this? a really good question i mean i think that would there be one project possibly not there are lots that i would say we were extremely proud of there was one i suppose really early on that i I would sort of hark back to we we um there's a company called nectar which is a sort of loyalty scheme part of sainsbury's and i remember very early on they were running um, a hackathon type event 
looking at how they had data analytics expertise within their business and had, had sort of felt that the charity sector might benefit from them. And I remember this event was happening on a Sunday and we had young kids and I said, look, I've been invited up there. Why don't we, why don't we just go and have a look? And it's again, one of those things where, you know, you could easily have not done it. You could easily have thought, well, it's a Sunday. Why would I want to track up to London and put a suit and tie on? Cause we used to wear suits and ties back then, you know, and actually I, I got to meet a lady called Gabrielle, the Wardner, who was their, um, their purpose lead, you know, their head of, of corporate ethics and responsibility. And she was just so blown away that having mentioned that they were doing this, that I bothered to come and, and see how it was going to work on the ground. And the reason I wanted to see is because I wanted to understand if it, you know, something I could learn and whether we could help them obviously develop that out and make something of a program of it. And, you know, years on, I'm still in touch with Gabrielle. In fact, I only spoke to her the other week and we had a right laugh catching up about what's been going on in the world and, and, and you know, where her career has gone. But, you know, that programme continues. Uh, it's it's Fantastic. part of yeah. into Sainsbury's. We've, we've replicated it with a big insurance company. And in fact, we've taken it this year, uh, the same principles um, of data philanthropy, we've taken to a, um, a group of universities here, the Cardiff, Bristol, and um, Aberystwyth. And, you know, so, you know, one of those moments where, you know, right the way back, and I can picture it today, um, an office just off Trafalgar Square, you know, you sort of see that happen. And we've, you know, we've been very fortunate that the programmes won pretty much all the CSR awards going. So when it comes to your own charitable giving, do you tend to find you're engaging your, you know, your day job intelligence to do your own giving or do you actually find giving quite difficult? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think you can't, you can't take the day job hat off. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm no different to anyone else. You know, the fundamental reason, first and foremost, that people give is because they're asked. You know, so I get asked and I and I give, you know, and I'll, I'll support someone, particularly, you know, as, as a somewhat retired marathon runner. You know, I know how grueling <coughs> training for marathon is. So I'll particularly support people if they have run, a, you know, running a marathon or doing something that's inspiring or there is some other, you know, factor. And, and, and of course, the, the reason you give is because they asked you. And at that point running the ruler over the reserves position or the accounts for the last five years would be, you know, the act of a madman, you know, be lunacy. So, you know, I'm clearly not, not driven in that way, but I think, you know, I suppose I'm drawn more to the world of some of our philanthropic clients who are able to spot really interesting, smaller, the, the, the breakthrough charities of tomorrow. And I suppose, I like to see that, and I'm I'm very inclined to support those charities that have something about them. And it's interesting, you know, <clears throat> you and I will have talked about this in the past, but you know, it's you know, if people give because they're asked, well, people give to people, and so one of the big factors in in, in what would motivate me to support a charity 
is that person or the or the people that make it the, the, the leadership or the founder and that then can be somewhat irrational you know you, you're drawn to somebody else because of some spark something about the way they are or the space they're in or the story that they tell so i'm i'm very drawn to that and you know our a lot of the work we would do um, which is more technical around the due diligence process, um, actually looking at the, you know, the accounts, actually reviewing some of the more fundamentals or, or, or other parts of how a charity is structured or its strategy, they all fall into it. But, you know, when it comes to your own personal giving, I think you're more drawn, you're drawn to the people who ask you for lots of reasons and you're drawn um, to that human connection with somebody who you feel you can trust and who you feel is doing something brilliant that, that can actually take the journey on and can, and can make a difference. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating subject. Steve now takes us right back to the beginning of his career. Enjoy. To university to study politics and a dear, a dear friend, um, Mike Richards, knew somebody at the FT group and said, look, I've got this mate who's looking to take a year out. Would you ever consider taking on an office junior? And I don't think office juniors exist anymore, but the principle for anyone who doesn't know is that you basically, you make the tea and you fetch the toast and you load fax paper into the fax machine and all the things that don't happen anymore because, you know, because the world's moved on. Yeah. And, it obviously landed on a good day. And I, I'm a firm believer in this, that these there's there's moments in your life where things happen and they happen for a reason. And, you know, I got taken on as this, you know, the, the office junior in a, in what was a real-time news agency. You know, it was called AFX News. It's, it's now, I think, um, defunct. And I remember turning up there on my first day and, and being told, you know, met, <clears throat> met David, the, uh, the manager, and he said, right, Steve, your first thing is you've got to go around and introduce yourself to everyone. And I was sort of 17 going on 18. And, and you know, you think that's okay, but actually that's quite scary. And David turned to me and said, well, remember everyone's name because your first job then is to take all of their tea and coffee and toast orders and deliver them to the to their desk. Bear yeah. in mind, this was time agency and it was sort of half six in the morning. So I was all, it was all a bit bleary eyed. But what I learned quite quickly was, A, everyone shortchanged you, so you always found yourself 50p <laughs> down, when, when 50p meant quite a lot, because I was being paid buttons, really, to, to do this, this, this role. But also, you won their trust, and all of a sudden, they saw you more as someone who could help them out and who could actually pick up some of their work. And so I went from sort of fetching the tea to actually covering their news and and it got me out and so at the age of sort of 17 18 much i'm sure to their uh, horror i was interviewing the ceos of FTSE 250 companies the occasional FTSE 100 company i was attending company meetings i was reporting on the politics of the day i got i got a quote from john major back then when he was starting his election campaign and so I had this incredible, you know, from that opportunity, I was given this incredible chance to do some extraordinary things at an extremely young age. And uh, it sort of, it set me up really. And then I went off 
to university to study politics, but carried on covering the party conferences and and, and working. And uh, yeah, that was my that was my trigger. And then from that, I came back and carried on working as a journalist before having one of those sort of not really a light bulb moment. I was I was cleaning the car with my late father, who'd worked in the banking sector for NatWest and had then ended up having this sort of another chapter of his career working as the CEO of a charity, the Surrey Wildlife Trust. And, you know, I said to him at the time, I said, look, is work really this? You know, getting up at five, coming home late. Um, I looked around the newsroom, I think, back then, and I wasn't necessarily seeing the inspiration that I needed to, to, to sort of map out how my life might, might play through. And, and Dad said, well, look, what, what about these skills? You know, you've spent your years interviewing senior folk. You've got, the, you know, these abilities. Why don't you try and transfer them to the charity sector? And it was, it was a real, you know, it never occurred to me that that, that could be a, a path. And, uh, you know, I found myself um, applying for jobs, didn't get them. And then the next big break came when I wrote some letters, and it, a letter to Macmillan and a couple of others, the letter landed on the desk of a guy called Edward Hodgkins, who was the director of fundraising at the time. And I'm still in touch with Edward. And it just happened that there was a, you know, there was a, they were looking for more resource. And here comes a letter saying, you know, I'm working as a journalist. I'd like to volunteer some time, you know, if, if you'd have me. Yeah. And again, you know, I seized the opportunity and, and came in and, and started volunteering. Again, aging me slightly, you know, my first role there at Macmillan, which is a you know huge and, and very impressive cancer charity, was to try and set up an e-newsletter, an email newsletter, which just hadn't been done. You know, it's, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But, you know, there yeah, hadn't yeah. been any, any approach to, to email communications. And that was it. And, you know, again, I, yeah. I sort of came in um, as, a, as a volunteer um, and... You know, before long, found that there was a role, and you know, from then on, you know, I, I then ended up at the Prince's Trust, but but for, for many years, and you know, my my ethos has always been: if I see the opportunity to give someone trying to break into the sector a chance, I've always supported that, and and even today, you know, I'll I'll help anyone who's trying to break into the sector because I, I desperately feel that there's huge skills and talents in the commercial world and our sector, the, the third sector, um, really needs those. And, and anything any of us can do to help facilitate that, that transition has to be a good thing. But that was yeah. definitely my, my journey. And then it, you know, the Prince's Trust um, had you know, a phenomenal through few years, met some incredibly... Um, inspiring people i think including someone like you know mark johnson who you've had i think on on the podcast. yeah previous guest yeah and um you know that, before that we a... be, before we get into that just touching on your because your dad played a huge role in that decision making process so do you think your sort of desire to have your career mean more than just slogging and you know working for profit and it meaning something uh bigger and and does, is that a really strong line that came through um with your dad in terms of growing up was that a, a constant narrative in the house and and kind of 
generosity, giving back, helping people? Was that kind of that you grew up with with him? I th- yeah, I think you know I feel very fortunate. You know, I've grown up in a in a loving family um, and surrounded by people who have, whether it was my father or my mother, who've you know, or, or family friends who have always sought to try and do their bit and, you know, not in a grand way, but, but try and, and contribute positively to the community we live in and to society. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, that, you know, was and remains a huge inspiration in terms of what, what motivated me to, to take that, take that risk and, and, to, and to challenge myself and move, move across into a new world. And, then continuing on to set up the giving department, you know, was right behind me and, and was very encouraging. So, yes, I think without doubt, you know, my parents, but particularly dad, was, yeah. you know, was a huge North Star in, in what, what I was looking to try and do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and and how, how privileged to have that. And, again, lots of the charities we work with um, some of the things that are so fundamentally missing are inspirational people. They don't always have to be family, but but so many of the, of the charities we work with, um, you're dealing with kids who just haven't had that positive that that positive current running under their lives. That 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 arm pushing them on. That that person who will be with them and and, and encourage them. And it, it's. You know, it's, it's definitely something that I've been very blessed to have have in abundance, and, and uh, no, no doubt, it's been a huge influencer on on the decisions I've made in in my career. Yeah, because we, you, you and I both ended up, and we met um, at the at the Princess Trust, and you had, I know you had some very happy years there, and just tying in what you've talked about in terms of, you know, setting an example or helping young people be the best they could be. Um, so you're at you're at the Princess Trust, and I think one of the exciting things about the Princess Trust is actually this real sprinkle of stardust, isn't there? Um, so how long were you there for, and what was your role? So I was there for um, about six years, I think, in the end, and and key key role within the fundraising function, but really looking at at new business development and actually being out there on the front line, meeting with new corporates, new major donors. As you say, you know, there's definitely there, there was, and I think remains, um, a sprinkle of, of magic about the way the Prince's Trust is able to fundraise. And that that was, again, a, a massive privilege, you know, and I, I got to meet some people there, both both the donor, who were often extraordinary, but also some folk that, that made that experience possible and, and really inspiring. And, you know, someone like, for example, um, Lord Young, you know, David Young of Gratham, who is undoubtedly one of the most um, unbelievable fundraisers. You really want him on your side. And, and it was the, the style, the elegance with which he could tell stories. And, I, you know, I can picture him now uh, in the Attlee room at the House of Lords. And he would, with some grace, say, you know, um, you know, I, I won't get between you and your lunch, but then I will. I will tell you a story, and it was a bit like you know some Werther's original advert, and almost everyone would lean in, and he would tell what he called the tides of disadvantage, and he would arrange this with me before before the lunch and say, "Should we, 
should we do the tides of disadvantage? And and he would just tell with this such elegance this story of Britain evolving, and a bit like puddles uh, left on a beach, there would be these puddles um, of, of disadvantage left, and and the prince's trust role was to go and find those those people, those those locked away villages and towns, and give those people the opportunity. And honestly, you know. The, the guests at these events were the great and the good. They, they'd, you'd think they'd have heard everything before, and they would hang on his every word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was really just an opportunity to to learn from the best and um, and and get incredible uh, exposure because of the, you know, because there were these royal feathers. You know, the, the royal feathers on the top of our. Um, of our letters, and we did write inky letters back then, yeah. were an opportunity to unlock lots of doors. They didn't unlock every door, and I, I can picture some then very entertaining meetings, one particularly where I think the prince had had some comments about uh, a piece of London architecture, and the meeting was literally um, the CEO of the company that felt affronted um, shouting at me about how the prince got it wrong and that his building was actually not a carbuncle. Nothing to do with the charity at all. They'd just completely seen the feathers at the top of the page and had invited me in to think I was some sort of representative of the Prince of Wales. Of course, um, we didn't get the, uh, we didn't win any fundraising that day, but it, it was quite a good story to tell when I got back to the office. Big changes, big realignments, st- you know, staff reductions, um, missions put on hold. It seems uh, to survive, and but then also other charities really needed through this period because the demand's high. Yeah, and I think we've we've seen a uh, you know it's been a fascinating twenty twenty in many ways, um, and our clients have all reacted really positively to the challenges, but also to the responsibility of being a donor or being a philanthropist. Um, and you know, we, we adopted the, the sort of London funding principles of, of flexibility, um, and we were able to help guide our clients to, to I think, do the, do the right thing. I don't have any regrets in, in some of the, the joint decisions we were able to take, but you can only give it once and I think a lot of money has been committed um, to keeping the lights on, as you say, Mark. You know, actually just making sure that that charities can continue. Um, that can't go on forever. You know, the schools being closed here has been a massive issue, and you know, a lot of charities have been completely unable to function. Now they've, you know, this dreaded word, they've pivoted and they've innovated to to try and go online and, and to create new um, distribution methods for what they're doing. And, and some of that has been fantastic. And I very much subscribe to the idea that it's given all of us um, a new set of tools for the toolbox and it will make us better, make the charity sector better, more efficient. It's cut through, it's enabled charities to cut through perhaps decade plus of of, of sticky jam that's been holding them back um whether that's doing consultations online whether it's you know w- whatever function 
that has been you know an incredibly important thing but you know our clients and 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 um philanthropists whether they're you know major or, or whether it's a corporate client you can't continue to fund charities that aren't able to deliver so i do think that in 21 22 we're going to see a bit of a correction and i think some charities perhaps those that have been slow to um, find new sources of income um, or just to have been unlucky in the way that they've been exposed to the to the funding world or have failed to pick up some of the sort of short-term support or have maybe not made the best advantage of the furlough scheme and other and other sort of um, government initiatives I think some of them um, will will fall over mm. and I suppose a, a part of me would say, well, that's a great pity. You know, they're all causes that have been set up and have been working with best intention. But in a way, you do need a correction from time to time. You do need the sector to be um, shaken up and and to be alerted to the fact that it needs to continually evolve and move on. And, and the, the expression of that will be some charities um some charities fail and some charities close but the opposite of that is the hope that others will be stronger and will be able to deliver the right solutions the right package of support in a sustainable way for the people who need it of tomorrow so yeah, you, yeah. Know, you, you you can get quite sort of morose or quite um sad about charities closing or you can say well actually it is a natural function of a marketplace uh, or of a or of the system and is an inevitable outcome so yeah but it, it, it's going to be um it's going to be a difficult difficult year and it's going to play through slowly i think through 21 and and into 2022 and certainly some charities are saying they don't really see a return to anything like normal until more like 2024 which feels an age away that will be upon us in a blink. So uh, no, yeah. absolutely extraordinary times we're, we're, we're living through. Steve Wickham, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Great to chat, Mark. Take care. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.